Welcome to Encounter, the podcast from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and today we're talking about religion and refugees. We'll be discussing the history of refugees, fleeing persecution, then later we'll explore the role religion has played in the present refugee crisis. We'll hear some personal stories along the way. My guests today are Julian Hubbard, humanist, former Lib Dem MP and director of the Intellectual Forum at Jesus College here in Cambridge. Good to you. Bayan al a student of translation and a refugee himself from Syria, and our director of research here at the Wolf Institute, Dr. Esther Miriam Wagner. Welcome to you all. Hi. Hey. Hey. Looking very summery, Julian. It is summer. I mean, it seemed like a plausible you know, thing to do. What experience have you got actually individually in terms of migration refugees? Miriam? Well, professionally, I work on migration in the past. So I work on Jewish migration out of Spain into Egypt, for example. Personally, as a family history, not my own family, but my husband's family. So my in-laws are actually refugees who fled the eastern parts of Germany after the Second World War. So right. there's a lot of family trauma there and a lot of family history. Okay. Julian? I mean, I'm, I guess, a migrant. I wasn't born in this country. My parents grew up in Australia. My father's family came over from Vienna just before the Second World War. My mother was even more difficult. So she was born in a refugee camp in Uzbekistan. And so they were refugees for the first couple of years. Being were, Polish. Po- Pol- being Polish Jewish landowners was not a great plan. Right. Um, but so, yeah. so her family got out before... Via, the... No, they were in Siberian slave labour camps. Okay. And then after the war then? And then when the Poles were released by the Soviet Union in 42, I think it was, they right. went down to Uzbekistan, so it was as far south as you could go. Yes. And yes. then when the war was over, they went back to Poland, then Paris, and eventually got out to Australia, because it was one of the few countries still taking refugees. I grew up in Cambridge, which is a lovely place. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. But it wasn't that hard to imagine that somebody like me could be a refugee. It could be all of us, and, and it is indeed you, Brian. And how long did you live in Syria for? So I lived in Syria around 22 years. Then I found myself in a camp in Jordan. So in Syria, because we used to have refugees after the Iraq war, the people, they came from Iraq and the war between Lebanon and Israel in 2007. So we called them guests. So we didn't know what refugee words means until we like, found ourselves like, in as a position. So, so you yeah. had that experience of being a host, if you like, yeah. of refugees and, and then becoming, yeah. becoming a refugee yourself. And myself included, I come from parents who were born in Vienna, who also had to flee persecution and came as children to this country. So we, we have that personal experience. One of the questions we should begin with is this use of language of, of refugee, of migrant, of asylum seeker, of displaced person. Does it really matter what words we use and, and what they mean? I mean, you know, Julian, in terms of the political world, people are very careful about their words and sometimes not so careful. What, what about these different terms that we use today? I think it's really important to draw these distinctions because the rules and the system that we should have in place should be different for somebody who lives in one country perfectly happily but would quite like to move to a different country because they'd like to. And we need to think about that completely differently from somebody who is forced to leave their country and needs help. You know, international law is very clear that there's a difference, but there's also a a moral difference. You know, if if I feel like living somewhere else, that's very different from if I simply do not have the option. And it's also important to talk about internally displaced people who often get, get forgotten. They're often left out of any of the considerations, any of the lists. So, yeah, I think it is really important that we do talk about this. What policies we should have about 
overall migration into the UK, for example, should be very, very different from what we will do for people who show up here at risk of their lives. But what's the difference? I mean, where's the line between that migrant who wants to better him or herself and that refugee fleeing persecution? There clearly is a spectrum. And the comment that you get back, and there's, there's a little bit of truth to it, but not very much, is that people will sometimes claim that they are moving because they have to when, when they haven't. You know, I think that's massively overstated, actually. The nicest idea of how to do this was actually many, many years ago, I, I was for a short period in a squat in the Czech Republic, as, as you do. As everybody um, should. As everybody should, should do. <laughs> and there was a guy who, who I was saying there who was very bohemian, and he had a really interesting idea, which was a global system where anybody would be entitled to asylum. No questions, full stop. But you wouldn't get a say as to where you went to. So you'd be able to exclude for certain criteria, but otherwise you wouldn't get a choice as to whether it was a wealthy country or a poor country. Now, there's lots of reasons why this wouldn't actually work. But the idea was that if somebody was saying, look, actually, I'd, I'd rather be in a nicer country just because I happen to want to make more money or whatever, you wouldn't be that excited because you might end up in a poorer country. But if you were trying to save your life, then you would be very happy just to get out. So it's quite a nice you know, conceptual way of well, doing it, but wouldn't work. But conceptually, I mean, it's interesting because when you and I have spoken, Brian, about where Syrian refugees want to go, even though their position has been one of you know, facing extreme trauma, actually they've been quite clear that certain countries like the UK that they want to get to rather than other parts of Central and Eastern Europe. Is, is, is that right? Yeah, like because most people like they have this idea about the UK or um, already they speak some English and they have this idea that the UK is a free country. Like for example, when uh, we arrived to Germany during my journey, Christian people, they came to fight us to Christian and people just, they fled from war and just they want to settle. And so hold on, let's get this straight. So you were, you were in a camp and a number of Christian missionaries came to the camp to bring you to Christ. Yeah. Is that, is that yeah, what they... Yeah. yeah, just like after two days, like before two weeks, we had like bombing in Syria <laughs> and just now <laughs> we found ourselves like become a Christian. No. So we, we were seeking for like a safe place, not like to change our religion. Or Right. I mean, what was your reaction to that? That. Was it kind of, were you dumbfounded? Was it a kind of, so really? Already or? Beco- uh, before I uh, like came uh, from Jordan, uh, when I left my family, I have this uh, fears that uh, I'm facing in Europe. We don't have any idea about if they will accept us or not. And then suddenly, your religion wrong. You should be a Christian. Why? <laughs> but another important question you raised is, of course, language. There are languages that are already leveled, languages of immigration countries. It's much, much easier to learn English than to learn Hungarian or to learn, you know, some sort of uh, Slavonic language. So those countries who have a long history of immigration, such as England, have a language that by nature lends itself to being learned. This is also a point that's very important. It's not just that the English countries happen to be the countries that are the richest. It's also that they actually have a language that is the most accessible. It's a global language in a way. Absolutely, yes. It's also, I mean, thinking about religion and refugees, one's not really running away as a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew, you're running away, you're escaping persecution as a citizen. So was there any sense amongst the refugees you, you, you fled with that actually wanted to be in a Muslim community or if they were Christian refugees, they wanted to be in a Christian community? Was there that sense at all? Yeah, at the beginning, everyone like willing to be in uh, the same like religion community. So first thing I did, I went to a mosque to ask about the local area, to know how people think because uh, we have to involve in the UK culture because if you keep in the same community you will be like uh, far away 
from like work, from job, from studying. And I suppose also you, you then would go to a, a Syrian community nearby, yeah. a Syrian community center, something like that, because you're obviously going to go to where you're, you're, you're most familiar. But it does show how religion and politics is that, that identity. We tend to just want to focus on one as aspect of identity, but we have so many different aspects of our identity. In your work, Miriam, is there any light that you shed on that in terms of the pre-modern period with all the movements of people? I mean, firstly, as we already said, we have to distinguish between religious persecution that has religious grounds that causes migration waves, for example, the Huguenots uh, coming to Britain or the early waves of Jewish and Muslim migrants out of um, Spain when they were basically you know, given the order either to, to convert to Christianity or to leave the country. But these sort of migrations then often go hand in hand with, with other phenomena. For example, something that may have a political cause, for example, the migration waves that came out of the east of Germany when Germany was uh, removed from, uh, but then the parts of Germany were actually sort of became Poland and, and Germans had to, to leave Czechoslovakia. After the Second World War, you After mean? the Second World yeah. War. I mean, these people often were, were Protestants that actually then settled in Catholic countries or Catholics that settled in Protestant areas. So while this, there was a political cause to the migration itself, it actually caused a big upset in the religious landscape. People were very, very hostile. But whenever there's a movement of people, it's going to be difficult, whether it's a religious aspect or an ethnic aspect. I mean, it's a very complicated picture. And I suppose one of the challenges we have in terms of the political leadership is, is how to navigate that. I mean, what have you learned from that in your experience, particularly talking about those issues with policymakers and politicians? I think it's very difficult, and I think in my time as an MP from 2010 to 2015, we saw the conversation space change very dramatically. That was partly the result of the rise of UKIP and various other things. But whereas in 2010, a lot of people would be happy to have discussions and say, you know, migration was a good thing, we should perhaps treat people more decently. The Home Office often didn't do what they should do, but there was a general tenor that it should be better. By 2014, 2015, I would find I was often the only person in a debate, not everyone was there, who would start off by saying having people from elsewhere coming here is a good thing. And I think that really changed. Now, it does put tensions, you know, whatever the religious, ethnic, whatever background, an influx of people to an area is a problem. If lots of people from Liverpool came to Cambridge, suddenly that would be a problem. If lots of people from Cambridge went to Liverpool, that would also be a problem, I'm sure. What we need to do, though, is to work out how do you actually do that? How do you provide the support? You know, people often say now, all of these foreigners, that's why there isn't housing, that's why I can't see things in the NHS. Most of that isn't really true. And if that was true, then the answer is to build more houses or to expand the local GP services or to make the school a bit bigger. That's because like there's a co it coincides with an economic crisis, right? Absolutely. That's the thing. Yeah. There's an economic crisis sort of hitting people and then they project it onto the immigrants rather than on Absolutely. the real causes. If, if you're looking for somebody to blame for things not being good, there's a classic set of people that it's always nice to blame. You know, you can blame the people in charge, but blaming people who don't look like you and don't speak like you. I'm not a historian, but I'm sure that's been true across the world time and time again. It's not acceptable. And we should be much more in the business of trying to, to help people. But the easy route for, you know, the Home Office routinely tries to placate 
what I would normally call the Daily Mail wing. But it's not just in the period of Conservative governments, is it? Or no. Conservative Lib- no. I mean, this, is, this, this, this has been going on for a long time. Yeah, I mean, so the one thing I'd, I'd say about the Home Office is that it has continually discriminated against people of all backgrounds for a very long time. You know, discriminated against Christians, against atheists, against Muslims, you know, pretty broadly. And it's done so for a long time. People have seen some of this now with Windrush. It's got a bit more sympathy. But it went before. I mean, I was, one of my former constituents was from Iran. and He was an opposition politician there, which is pretty brave. He then converted to Christianity, which is a capital offence. He was arrested, tortured, condemned to death. Somehow, and I don't quite understand how, he managed to get out of the country and into the UK, applied for asylum and had it rejected because there wasn't enough evidence that he was actually at risk. And he'd included in the application a copy of the death sentence that had been passed against him, which left me slightly wondering what the evidentiary standards were that they expect when you're fleeing persecution. <laughs> you know, the government says, we will kill you if we find you. Um, <laughs> what more did you want? Now, this was actually just before I became an MP, and you know, he, it was all sorted out. He now lives here. But it's been a problem for a very, very long time. And I think part of it is that there's the anti-migrant rhetoric. There's also just the fact, I think, very, very few people care about the systems. They're not very interested in the fact that the Home Office treats people badly. I don't know what your experiences were. Maybe you were lucky. I suspect it was a lot of fighting. So when I came to the UK, I found like uh, a big gap between the government and the citizen. So I didn't feel like uh, that I'm coming from the government Home Office, a G4S. So for example, uh, I refused to uh, sign my accommodation while I was an asylum seeker because the accommodation was, even I got a report from the GB that no human can live in this room. But she said, if you don't sign it, uh, you will be homeless in the street. I mean, remember you telling me when you actually arrived in the Northeast after this terrible journey and you had a very different encounter with the system in terms of the police. uh, This is the bad thing. I'm coming to the good things. So after that, uh, I found like uh, the welcoming from the volunteer people, the charities. uh, Without them, I would be like, I'm not in the UK. I'm I'm not in the University of London now. I'm not studying. So for example, when I arrived to Newcastle, after 44 hours in a small box in a lorry, the police guy and uh, the one from the home office, they were very friendly. And they said, you are unlucky, you didn't find unless this lorry. So this means, yeah, you have to pass this hurdle of life, then you are welcome. So they were very friendly. Even he asked me because it was Ramadan, if you are fasting or not. I told him I'm fasting for three days. So he <laughs> gave me some uh, chocolate, some uh, water. And that's just amazing. Uh, would you mind telling us about the beginning of your journey? So I went to Jordan. It was very difficult because uh, I had to cross like the desert for uh, six hours. They didn't ask me about seeking asylum. So I stayed in the camp for, uh, in the beginning of the camp in 2012. It was like the situation horrible. So I stayed five days. Then my family were like, get out. So I uh, got out with my uh, brother Hassan. Then I moved to Amman for work. I worked two years in uh, a supermarket. Uh, in Jordan, I tried to live there. I tried to uh, get a place at uni, but it was very difficult because I'm Syrians. In 2012, there was no support. Uh, while now, it's like lots of Syrians now at universities. So in 2012, I had no chance. I just work like 16 hours. Uh, then I was thinking for a month, two months about uh, this idea of moving and uh, take this opportunity to come to Europe. So 
I planned that uh, if I go there, I have to study, I have to improve my life, not just about seeking a safe place, because Jordan, in part, it's like a safe place to live. You don't have like chances to build your life or to go forward in your life. So that's why I took that decision and it was the biggest one in my life. I'm not surprised, Brian. Tell me how you felt making that decision. A little bit scared, but like uh, if you have something to do, uh, you should leave your fears and just go ahead to do it. Even my family, uh, my dad tried for uh, two weeks. No, you'll stay here. I will get you married. And I told them, no, <laughs> I have to do uh, something in my life. So your family wanted you to stay? To be honest, my mom, I think she supported me because I'm the youngest in uh, my family. So she said, OK, I trust you. Just go. I know that this was one of the most difficult decisions that you made. What was the journey like? So it was from Jordan to Turkey. We didn't have visa at that time, so by plane. Then from uh, Turkey, it started my uh, journey. So it was like 20 hours in a small bus to the beach side. Then we took the boat to Greece. We had three attempts. We were like caught by uh, the Turkish government policemen. Uh, then uh, in Greece, we spent like three days under trees. It was winter in November 2015. After Greece, we crossed by land to Slovenia, to Croatia, then uh, to Austria. At that time, the governments, they were guiding us. So from Austria, I, I crossed to uh, Germany. I stayed in Germany around six months. Then uh, I moved to France, to Calais Camp. I stayed like around a month. I tried three times also from France, I couldn't make it. Then I moved to Belgium for a few days in Ramadan 2016. I was lucky and unlucky at the same time. And lucky because I stayed just a month in Calais camp because there's no condition of life there. And unlucky because I spent three days in Adori. But now, yeah. If you don't mind, Brian, could you just tell us a little bit more? I remember it uh, every day before I get like taking any big decision in my life, I always remember it. But like moving from Syria, I feel it's like 10 years ago or 15 years ago. But this journey, especially the lorry one from Belgium to uh, the UK, it was the most difficult 44 hours in my life. Because uh, already we were making jokes with my friends in Cali. They said, Bayan, you might spend like four hours. I said, no, four hours in Alori? I can't expect that. They said, sometimes people spend nine hours. I said, no, I'll be just like out of the lorry, whatever will happen. So when it came to me, I spent like 44 hours. I, th I was thinking, no, my friends said until nine or 10 hours. I didn't expect it to be alive after the lorry uh, journey. So I was thinking about why, why I did this, why I have to survive to be in a safe place, even the UK. We all humans, we should have had these hurdles to pass to be alive. So it was very difficult and um, yeah. Why I didn't stay in Jordan, why I didn't I stay in Syria, yeah. why I put my family in these conditions. And they were crying when I arrived to the UK, to Newcastle. And uh, I called them, they were crying. They didn't believe that I'm still alive. In your time in, in Syria, you never met knowingly any Christian families. And of course, there are very few, if any, Jews in Syria. And so your perceptions would be 
you know, clouded by whatever you read or whatever you heard in the media. And there you end up in a Jewish family. And that must have been a very sort of strange uh, moment. Yeah, that's right. In Syria, uh, I didn't meet any uh, Jewish families, but Christian, uh, my best friend was uh, Christian. Uh, but Jewish family, it was uh, first time my English family now. So I was a little bit surprised because I don't know their attitude, what they think about me. The idea when I changed my mind about living with other families, it was in Calais, to be honest, because I asked the volunteers people, why you did this work? Now people, they ask, what's your religion? What's your background? Why you didn't ask us? They said, because we treat you as a humans. So this sentence I always remember. And uh, yeah, I thought maybe this family will treat me as a human, not like as a Syrian who his government fight with Israel or they have problems with uh, Israel government. I remember Trish and I talking about it, of course. And it was Trish's suggestion to say, look, I think we need to do something to help. And, you know, her mother is Irish. And so there's a connection there in terms of migration. And my parents, as you know, came from Vienna. What does that mean? You know, we have this Jewish household and we're going to be bringing in not so much a Muslim, but somebody from complete outsider. And what kind of impact is that going to have? So we had a family discussion with all the children and everyone said, yes, this is something we must do. And actually what you've brought to us uh, and the gift you brought to us is reminding us of some of the important things in life. Yeah, yeah. because uh, to me, like I believe in the change in the community start from the individuals. So if I start telling my friends, my families, uh, my community about the advantage, what I get from this family living with them, what they are like, just they treat me as a human, this will bring people together. It's all about the individual relationship, isn't it? For me, one of the most moving moments was when you and I went back to Jordan. One of the patrons of the Wolf Institute is Prince Hassan of Jordan. And I see him a couple of times a year. And when I saw him, I said that you were staying with us and that your family are living in Erbid but you can't go back because when you left, that was something that you were not allowed to do. And he facilitated the return um, for you to see your family and your parents for the first time in five, a few years, three or uh, four, four years. Three and a half, yeah. yeah. And it was one of the most moving moments of my life to come with you. And I remember taking that car journey. Do you remember yeah, from yeah, Amman yeah. to Abid? We had a royal driver and we arrived at your parents' house and you sat at the back and you said, what do I do now? Yeah, I told you, yeah, I was shocked. So, because I used to, my English family here, so I asked him, okay, what I have to do now? Go first. So I asked it to go first to see my family. And what did I them. say? Uh, he said, no, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. yeah, I can't uh, forget uh, that moment. It was like a gift from uh, God. It was, yeah. it was a real gift. Well, we're going to take a break and come back in part two. You're listening to a podcast from the Wolf Institute. We'd like to hear your thoughts. Get in touch with us on the Wolf Institute Facebook page or email us at encounterpodcast at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Now back to the show. Welcome back. Here we have, you know, under Cameron in 2015, he announced that the, the government would, would allow in 20,000 Syrian refugees, of which officially 10,000 have arrived. In Germany, more than a million, million and a half people arrived in the space of 18 months. So it's one thing to think about 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people. Here we're talking hundreds of thousands of people. Are there any other examples in history where we've had to cope with such significant numbers of people? Certainly, the expulsion waves from Spain were quite mm. uh, sort of intensive in terms of uh, newcomers to minority communities 
around the Mediterranean. So, for example, in Cairo uh, in, from the 13th, 14th century onwards, people started arriving from France, from Spain, and they weren't very welcoming to those people because they didn't speak Arabic, which language is always an important point. If, if you don't speak the language perfectly, people don't like you quite as much. You see that here as well. If you are, you can be physically, obviously, someone who doesn't have a, a background in Britain, but if you speak perfect English, you're immediately welcome. People feel when you speak the language that you're part of the community. So there are these complaints where they say, you know, these people don't even speak Arabic. How can we have them here? Of course, it wasn't quite as complicated in terms of state because there was no welfare system by the Fatimids, for example. They wouldn't hand out uh, money to the new arrivals, but the communities had to. So the communities, the Jewish communities had to feed these new arrivals. And of course, there were tensions. And there were, for example, degrees which stated oh, these people can't hold any sort of communal functions, can't, can't hold communal offices because they're not, they're not from us, they're not our part. Even they were Jewish, they were not seen as part of so the community. So there's internal tensions. You know, coming back to Germany, these big migration waves you had, there were millions of people on the move at the end of the Second World War. And the way they were received was actually very similar to these big upsets that the new migration wave have, have caused in Germany. I mean, people are very, a large part of the population now is very upset. There is serious sort of civil discord at the moment in Germany. Well, there's tension, isn't there? There's a lot of there's, tension. There hasn't been much outbreak of violence as far as there I know. There hasn't been because of certain structures that were put in place after the Second World War. But I know that, for example, my father-in-law, he keeps on talking how he was spattered in the street because he was a refugee from the East and he, they settled in, in a town in East Germany. And people spattered them because they were Catholics, for example. Or, you know, you have similar experiences of people setting, settling in, in other Protestant areas. But Catholics were seen in the same way that people see Muslims now. And of course, nowadays, this is completely forgotten. This is this historical forgetfulness that people are very happy now with, with you know, the communities that are there. But at the time, I mean, the vitriol that people met who, had, who were coming from the East, even though they were Germans, the vitriol that they met in sort of daily encounter was terrible. And often when we think about refugees and religion and refugees, we, we naturally I, I think about the Jewish refugees um, and those who fled uh, the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe before the rise of Hitler, actually. Both my parents were born in Vienna and my mother came out in what's called the Kinder Transport, brought over by a Quaker. Uh, the Quakers and historic churches renowned for bringing over uh, Jewish children. The government would allow 50,000 uh, children if they were sponsored. So the Jewish diaspora has been fed in many ways by a series of of migrations, of refugees in one place or another. And it's very much part of the Jewish identity, actually. That's not the case, I don't think, in, in terms of Christian identity. And it hasn't historically been the case in terms of Muslim identity, except more recently. Is, is that because of the collapse of a, a sort of a systematic government in Arab countries, Bayern? Or um, what do you put that fact down to? I think, like, if you look around the world now, all uh, the people who suffer around the world, most of them Muslims. So well, many of them. Yeah, most of them Muslims. I think because like the absence of the good governments in Arab worlds, uh, especially because uh, we have the dictatorships leaders, I mean, they built uh, their uh, the system of the country uh, to be ruled by one person. And people like after 2000, they came like uh, more uh, wise about uh, politics, about media. But before people were like busy just uh, to uh, save their life conditions. But when people came uh, more uh, 
aware about politics, about media. But of course today, you know, the situation is at least calming down because of this sort of Assad, Russian axis to sort of control and dominate the country after the war. Do you think the social media and the sort of proliferation of communication means that, that younger people will always be more politically engaged or are they so damaged by what's happened that they're going to take a, a back seat? Uh, I think uh, they are more damaged. This uh, explain why they came especially to the West. Gulf, uh, Saudi Arabia, they have their uh, hard condition to be a refugee. Except, of course, countries like Jordan, Lebanon, have taken in vast numbers mm -hmm. of refugees, the neighboring countries. Yeah. So it's really those that have the strength, I suppose, like you as a young man or like my parents as children or Julian's parents. You know, when you're younger, you have that strength um, and maybe the idealism and the optimism to leave. But for older people, it's, it's much harder. Yeah, uh, like before I uh, took my decision to leave to the West, uh, I was thinking for a month because it's like uh, a crucial decision for my life. Uh, my family refused at first because they are older. They thought uh, I will be facing lots of problems, especially I have to cross the Mediterranean between Turkey and Greece. Yeah, I face lots of problems, but I mean, you should accept to face lots of uh, hurdles in your uh, journey. Because if you just stop for a day or two days, you will go uh, backwards. You should have like a plan, not just to search for a safe place. Because for me, there's no safe place in the world. So uh, if you're looking for uh, like to be safe or to just survive to live, you can stay even in Syria. My friends, uh, my relatives still in Syria. But the idea of refugee coming to the Europe or to the West, just like uh, searching for a better life, to improve their life, to continue their uh, education. And that's why like, I have uh, some comments about the term refugee. Now I'm a student at University of London, and uh, by the end of my studies, I'll be earning around uh, 80,000 pounds. So uh, how I still have this label? So as a person who is defined as asylum seeker or as a refugee, that's something that you'd want to push back on. Yeah. How would you call yourself? According to the UK uh, laws, I should be a resident of the UK, same as uh, British people, because I pay a home student uh, fees. Right. So how I pay the home student fees and I'm still a refugee? Because if you just say, yes, I'm a refugee, you'll be like in a complicated argument for two hours. And people will have this idea about you like in a sympathy way. So the first thing will uh, say, we are sorry, Bayan, we know the uh, things you went through. I mean, this, this brings us back to the conversation earlier, doesn't it, Julie, in terms of the language semantics, because you have people who don't want to identify as refugees and uh, they, they want to identify as a UK resident. And it's a lot more complicated. Absolutely. I mean, you need some clear definitions for legislation. But once you've done that, obviously you should, as, as far as possible, let people self-define. I mean, that's a useful general principle. You can't quite go as far as letting people just choose what category they are for, for legal purposes. But I think it's great, and people don't need to sit in one particular role. I think one of the problems that we've had, you know, there was the, the, the disaster over the asylum claims that were just put in a warehouse and forgotten about, where there were 340,000 cases which just sat for 10 years, 15 years, with people waiting. You know, nobody should ever be forced into a situation like that. You know, so, so yes, language matters, and it's good that you get some sympathy. I can imagine you get fed <laughs> yeah. up with it, <laughs> you know, because you do so want right. to be treated as a human. Well, more than a human, you just want to be treated as normal, as, as, yes. you know, as, as an ordinary person. Well, I mean, you know, to step into philosophy, I'm, I'm very much a Rawlsian liberal, and so to me the way of thinking about it is, is rules veil of ignorance. You know, what would we want the rules to be 
if we didn't know who we would be in the real world. So if we all got together, you know, and the four of us were told one of us would come from Syria, one, you know, whatever, what would you like the rules to be? We would thrash out, hopefully, some quite fair rules. If you look globally, what, one in a hundred of the population are refugees? You'd want to provide a lot of support for that 100 people because a one in a hundred chance that it would be you. And that comes down to saying, who is a person? How do we work out what would be best for each person? Yeah, to me, that's a very humanist way of thinking about it. But of course, I mean, sort of a common reproach is that the ideas we have about belonging are very much shaped by nation-state ideas, sort of nationalism, that you have to be born in a certain country, you have to have some certain blood relationship to it, you know, you have to have roots in a certain country. But of course, in the Middle East, the concept is very different. I mean, the way that the, the sort of pluralist states work was very, very different. We talked about the fact that so many of the refugees happen to be Muslims today. And of course, this has to do, I mean, we haven't mentioned that, of course, there's a relationship to climate as well. I mean, you know, the Muslim states happen to be the ones that are in climate zones that are struggling at the moment with, with sort of global warming. So this is something that I think we'll also see increasingly come into play because the Christian populations tend to settle in countries that haven't been affected as much quite yet. Yes, so you've got fleeing from persecution and violence and civil war and strife and then fleeing from environmental conditions. Yeah, but I mean, often it actually goes together. I mean, we see that the big waves, I mean, down to the Mongols or these sort of inner step talks coming in, there's often a relationship with climate. So when you see the Fatimid empire breaking down, it has to do with a big drought that is there for five years. People don't have enough food. When people don't have enough food, they flee the countryside, they go to cities, then you have urban struggle. So there often is a, is a much closer relationship than people realize. And um, again, when we talk about Muslims coming, I mean, a lot of people who come here, they are slightly offended. They come from a Muslim country, but then they're not necessarily practicing Muslims. And now suddenly they come here and they're being identified as you are a Muslim because you are from a Muslim country. I mean, people from here would be equally offended if you come from England and people sort of say, oh, you're the Christian. Yeah. Um, so I think we have to be very careful in, in the, in the, sort of the, this, the we, adjectives we, we're being using. You're, you're absolutely right. But we are being pushed more and more to kind of reject that hybrid identity that we are co a collection of labels. And we're highlighting always one. And often it's the religious one. So, you know, no? Well, I'm just thinking about it. So the BBC did a survey a couple of weeks ago about how people think about their identities and labels. And what they found was that younger people in particular were very keen on having multiple labels. So this was across England, and there was a very, very strong relationship that older people felt that they would be English or something else. Whereas younger people said, no, you know, I'm, I'm English, I'm this, I'm that. I, I so actually, I, my sense is that people are more accepting of, of multiple labels and more rejecting of the idea that you have to be just an Arab or just a Muslim or just a refugee or just a student in London. I mm -hmm. think that's, I'm not quite sure if I would accept that. Far be it from me to challenge BBC research, but that sort of focus on the one aspect of identity really developed soon after the Rushdie affair. Muslimness became elevated over above being Asian or being Pakistani or being other. And of course, I'm, I'm a great believer in hybrid identities and, and sort of the multiplicity of identity. But I do fear that we are reverting to type and that these migrations, that the way we view these migrations is often as one aspect. And it's that ah, the Muslims are coming or whatever the, the sort of stereotype is that we have to overcome. I think there are definitely aspects of stereotyping mm. and people trying to impose single identities. 
But I'm, I think the evidence suggests that people are, are not accepting that is what should happen. And you could argue that the Trumpian view of the world is very much about it's all very simple, it's all very clear cut. There are good guys and there are bad guys and there's nothing in between. And it's definitely not a Muslim travel ban. Let's go back to the, the state expulsion and movement of people because we've talked a little bit about the individual movement of people maybe as a result of state action but after the second world war suddenly people found themselves in countries that they didn't really feel they were part of what kind of reactions do we have when germans suddenly realized they were in poland for example well i mean they did a clear cut then they understood that they couldn't have a fifth column so people were probably ethnically cleansed and this, is, of course, is something that caused a lot of conflict between the generations. The people who had actually fled, they really bore a serious grudge against the Czechoslovakian government or against the Polish government for expelling them. But I think this is actually where the whole movement, the cultural movement that we see in the West, this move away from a collectivist idea of society to an individualist identity helps. So seeing yourself as someone whose origins are, for example, in Czechoslovakia, but who came here, who's a Catholic in a Protestant area, who, for example, plays a musical instrument or that. People sort of pick and mix and choose their own identities in a way that makes them unique. And I think this is actually quite helpful, overcoming these collectivist ideas of nationhood by focusing on the individual. It's interesting because if you compare it to other parts of the world, I'm thinking of the subcontinent and the Middle East. So in the subcontinent in the late 40s, the British left India um, and there was a massive movement of migration of peoples, of displaced peoples, often actually religiously motivated. Hindus left what became Pakistan to go to India. Muslims from India went to Pakistan or uh, East Pakistan, later Bangladesh. You look at, of course, perhaps one of the most famous examples today is, is Israel-Palestine and the, you know, the creation of the State of Israel and the refugees, Palestinian refugees, vast numbers of, of Palestinians who feel very much connected to that land and they haven't become individualized. They remain very strong in their Palestinian identity. So it seems to be a difference between the West and other parts of the world. Is that fair to say? I don't know. I mean, the thing is, again, we're moving within a very nationalist paradigm. So this creation of homogeneous states that we've seen in the former colonial states, I think, had to do with colonial statehood ideas, because in the Middle East, you had a very long tradition of very pluralist states. But you always had large majorities, though. I mean, you, you, had might, have, you might yes. have large minorities of Christians and large minorities of Jews, but in that part, there were majority were... Muslim. In, in India, you had very large minorities of, of Muslims and smaller but still significant Christian groups, but it was predominantly Hindu mm. and so but on. But again, it's, it's, it's interesting because, for example, in the very beginnings of the Islamic empire, a lot of Palestine was actually probably still Christian. It was only the crusaders, the Christian immigration that changed this. And then people were forced to convert as a consequence. But I think the original idea was really that you had a Muslim minority ruling over you know, a very, very pluralist sort of landscape. And do you think at that point, if the Crusaders in the sort of 12th century and 13th century took over land through that force and that violence and eventually were kind of expelled, was Christianity from that point always seen as a threat in that part oh, of the world? Oh, absolutely. It's always about the outside force. I mean, when you have a, a Christian majority living in your country who never stir up trouble, who pay their taxes, that's no problem. But as soon as you have outside forces coming in and then suddenly you have a large fifth column in your country, of course, that changed attitudes. So basically, the Crusades wiped out Christianity in, in that part of the world because 
suddenly you know ideas about threat shifted. I mean, so it's that's all pretty about depressing, threat. isn't it? Because it's sort of implying that pluralism has no future. Well, that's actually where it becomes really interesting because what we see, for example, on, on the example of America, is that friction actually can cause extreme cultural flourishing. I remember in in the 80s and 90s, the idea that Germans had of multicultural Britain. It was that amazing country where people of all, you know, sort of colors, creeds live together and produce, you know, a culture that then fertilizes the whole globe. So there is something to the friction that we have in multicultural societies. When you look at Americans, I mean, the big immigration waves after the pogroms in Russia, when Jews for the first time went in large numbers to America and they were seen as outsiders in the beginning. They had a you know a fairly hard time until the 40s and 50s when suddenly a lot of Jewish Americans became very prominent in the entertainment industry and through culture they managed to establish Jewish culture as an integral part of American culture. So Except it's, who it's, knows it, that White Christmas was was performed and <laughs> composed by you know a yeah, Jew? Yeah. It's very very difficult to anticipate what sort of ways cultural um, developments will take. So who's to say maybe you know in a hundred years time Muslim culture will be you know at the forefront of entertainment culture? It's it's mm-hmm. impossible to say yeah. now. It's true because uh, like in Germany when I was in Germany, some people we face even in the street they are afraid of the refugee crisis, especially. Uh, Muslims background they said like for example some of them you are coming to like make our countries Muslims to create your own state here we we I totally understand their point of view because maybe the propaganda and media they follow or something I didn't like it any uh, good treatment in France once I was working during the daytime and the police car it has like five uh, policemen and they throw gas on our faces just because we are refugee or because we are Muslims, even they are policemen, they are not educated uh, well. And this is the biggest problem in Europe we face as uh, Muslims, that people uh, judge you before they speak to you, before they know you, who you are. Or some people, once they hear like that you are Muslim, they have this idea that you are like a cousin of Osama bin Laden. (laughs) (laughs) Or you are like, because in uh, Muslim culture we say brothers. So you are a brother of the one who did the attack in uh, uh, France 2015. But you know what, Brian, sometimes <laughs> I go to America, you know, and I meet people and say to me, you're, you're, you're from Cambridge. I, I know someone in Manchester. Do you know them? So, you know, this is part of the, the human yeah. condition. But, but so, there is something somewhat insidious about, particularly with, with Muslims, that it is assumed that there is this, this one coherent group. You know, when you have a terrorist in the US who is Christian, Nobody then goes around the world saying, oh, you're a Christian, you must think it was great to kill all of those people. You know, that, that I think we are in a, a phase at the moment. You know, I don't know if it happened, you know, with, with some of the Israeli terrorism, you know, pre-48, you know, what, was there a sense that, you know, are you going to blow up hotels in London? I don't know if anybody ever said that. But I think there is a really insidious thing that it is assumed that all Muslims must agree with anything awful done by some other person who happens to be Muslim or claims to be Muslim. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, you know, we, we had that in, in this country with IRA bombings in the 70s and early 80s. You know, to what extent was this just republicanism committed by Catholics or what was it Catholic bombings? Yeah. And actually the German media have been very careful at that point, the British government, but also German media, about how you, de- how you describe it. So, you know, when there have been attacks 
in Germany very recently, the media have been very careful how to describe it and not to sensationalize it. And there's, there's really something for us to learn. We've all talked about religious persecution, people fleeing for those reasons. But it is, of course, worth remembering there are lots of countries which execute people for being atheist. There are 13 countries in the world which will execute people for that, being apostates. And we've had real problems with people being killed there in Pakistan and Bangladesh. There are some particular problems. And actually, this country has been quite bad. There was a case recently of somebody from Pakistan who was here as a humanist. And the Home Office quizzed him on, if you're a humanist, name two ancient Greek philosophers who are also humanist. I don't know if people listening may want to think about who they were. Apparently, the correct answers were Plato and Aristotle. Plato is definitely not a humanist. Aristotle, yeah. But certainly not being able to come up with that doesn't prove you're not actually a humanist. I'm sure we could all be quizzed on all sorts of religious things and we wouldn't know every detail. So we're coming towards the, the end of this uh, pod, but I wonder if you could share with us one idea that would help understand the problem, the preconceptions that we have about refugees. What can we do better? The most important thing when refugees come uh, to the UK, they expected a lot. They expected a lot from the government, from people. So uh, first thing, they thought that they came to the heaven land or something. So this is true in like Middle East. So they came here and they faced this idea of, uh, no, you have to work from the government or the people, the local people. I think just talk with the refugee because this is a big gap between the older people and the families and the community here because they don't put them in touch with the UK families. So just to involve in the community in the UK, I think this missing between the families and the local people, not just about the government. There are lots and lots of detailed policies, and I've, I've written very long, boring policy papers and all this stuff, but I think the key of it is exactly what you were just saying. It's about humanisation. It's about getting across to people that refugees aren't some sort of demonic group over there, but they are human beings. And I think anything that you can do to support that, so some of that is about the narrative, talking more about people who came as refugees and who they are now. I think the Lord Mayor of Sheffield, I think it is, who was a refugee who came here and has now managed to, a uh, Green Party member, become, become Lord Mayor. Now there's a story of somebody who isn't yeah. one of these refugees coming to swamp everything. He's a guy who has a slightly weird dress sense who poses around the town. You know, he's a human. And I think if we can get more people who are refugees or migrants seen as humans, that breaks down a lot of the narrative. It's the same you see in lots of other groups. Studies in the UK and the US have shown that people say politicians are dishonest, liars, but they like their congressman or their MP because it's a human. And so I think if we could get, you know, rather than there being large numbers of foreign people who we don't know, if they start to become humans that are part of our community, then I think that will transform and, and then sort out all the rest of the stuff that we need to get right. Well, for me, it's about positive encounter. It's about creating positive experiences together. So if I had money, I would spend a lot of money on creating places where people can play football together, where people can make music together, where people can enjoy music together, where people have some sort of exchange that really acquaints them and makes them experience something very nice together with someone from a different background. I think that's the most important thing, to create common experiences, because that creates community. I like the way each of you have tried to bring it down to the individual. I think for me it's realising that actually we are all descended from refugees if we're not refugees ourselves. So it's realising that it could be me. So with that I'd like to thank you all for taking part in this podcast and thank you for listening. My guests today were Julian Hubbard, humanist and former Lib Dem MP, Bayan Al-Masri, 
a student of translation, and Dr. Esther Miriam Wagner, Director of Research here at the Wolf Institute. Next time, we're going to have one guest. Daniel Zeichner, the local Labour MP, will be exploring issues of religion and belief both locally and nationally. See you next time.